folks. Uh, welcome to uh, the next edition of Weekend Superstars with George Moulton and John McHugh. Uh, John McHugh is absent today. Couldn't get things worked out, so I'm rolling solo. But the cool thing about it is I shouldn't have any problems getting any questions out. or And I don't know that I'll be surprised at any of the answers, but I might be. But today I'm sitting here with uh, not only one of the founding members of the bluegrass band Hammertown, but uh, the guy just happens to be my best friend, so about 30 years, close to it anyway. So y'all welcome Mr. Scott Tackett to the show. It's a pleasure to do this. I've listened to most of these episodes, and uh, you know, when you asked me to do this, I was just as excited as I could be. wish John could be here, but uh, yeah, you and I shouldn't have any uh, issues. No, I can't imagine. Filling an hour. No, uh, no, we, uh, you know, it was John's idea, and he was just like, man, he said, where you know how we we all play, we all were out, and so we very seldom get a chance to go hear anybody or see anybody play, and so it's just basically a way for us to get together for all musician buddies and, and shoot the shit. I've really I've really enjoyed the podcast. I've turned some uh, fellow musician friends over in Vanceburg onto those things, you know, and uh, to a man, it always seems like the Greg Austin podcast, and, yeah, and then yeah. the JP Pennington podcast yeah. are, are people's favorites, you know. Yeah. So um, a lot of people are aware of it, and like I say, I'm just tickled to death to be to be a part of it. Well, man, let's just get into it. Uh, like I say, I don't know that uh, you're going to catch me off guard with anything, but you might. You might. So usually the first question, we just go into it, man. What what inspired you to want to play music to begin with? You know, you probably know this story, but uh, when I was like nine or ten years old, I wanted a guitar. And uh, I had uh, asked Mom and Dad for a guitar, and it was I didn't know it at the time, but it was this little old cheap one, you know. Well, I'm just saying all right, we had a technical difficulty there. It was my mental breakdown. All right, so you were nine years old. You wanted a guitar for your birthday. Yeah, like I said, I didn't know it at the time. It, of course, it was a cheap one, you know, cause, and I don't blame him for getting a cheap one because it, at that age, you don't you don't know if a kid's going to stick with it or not. But I remember hearing on Hee Haw, Roy Acuff, do the ball bass cannonball. Yeah. And I learned, taught myself the chords to the ball bass cannonball. And I was doing pretty good with it. But, um, you know, I got into sports baseball and basketball and I put the guitar down and I actually didn't pick it, pick it up again until I was probably 33, 30, 32, 33 when, when, <clears throat> yeah. when you and I started running yeah. together, you know, and I think the first guitar I bought, if you'll remember, Dale Lunsford owned it, still owned it the last time I talked to him was at Alvarez Yari. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, you taught me my first chords on a guitar and how to tune a guitar and uh, Larry Fraley up the road here was the guy that uh, got me uh, started in bluegrass style rhythm yeah. and that kind of yeah. thing. So uh, I, just, I just got bitten, you know, and every, every musician's got the same story, it seems like, just a different yeah. way of getting to it. Yeah. So, I mean, like as far as influences, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, I know that Keith and, and that whole ordeal was a huge influence, but uh, who else, I mean, whether it be country, whatever it is, I mean, in the era that we grew up in, I mean, I know we both listened to a lot of different kinds of music, not just country and bluegrass, but rock mm -hmm. and everything yeah. else. Who, who were the guys or bands that, that inspired you and that you think you took things from? I'll tell you a story that when I was uh, when I was just a little guy, you know, we we heated our home with wood with wood stove yeah. by wood stove, and I can remember getting up on Saturday mornings and Dad had an old seventy two red Chevy Chevy seventy two Chevy pickup. And us going to the woods on a fall morning and cutting wood, and we would listen to Carmel Stevens out of uh, oh, yeah. out of uh, Grayson, Kentucky, yeah. over there at WGOH. 
and he had a bluegrass show. And at that time, I wasn't a bit interested because it was Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley yeah. and those guys singing yeah. through their nose. And yeah. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get interested in bluegrass. You know, I was into old country, and <clears> uh, you know, ACDC yeah. and, and that kind of thing. You know, uh, but I was working at Sealmaster in about 1993, and a buddy of mine. Uh, Asked me to go to Poppy Mountain to Bluegrass Festival, and I I said I don't know, you know I don't know if that's really my deal. And he said, well, what do you know about bluegrass? And I said I just Ralph Stanley and Bill Monroe. I, I don't know about that. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll buy your ticket and I'll buy the beer. Yeah, if you'll just go with me. Well, that's he, pretty good he, deal. He, he said if you don't, if you're not satisfied, you don't have to give me a dime back. And uh, I remember distinctly the first band that I heard when they came out. Um, they were they were driving it, and I'm like. Man, these guys are really good. They get a chance to be really good. Yes. At that time, they were the five-time IBMA vocal group of the year. It was Russell Moore and Third Time Out. They, they were, were they were already. Really oh good. yeah, I just didn't know it. And then the yeah. Lonesome River Band. Oh yeah. With uh, Ronnie Bowman and Kenny Smith and Don Rigsby and Sammy Sheeler, they were next. And the, from the first chord they hit, I was hooked on bluegrass. Yeah. And you were actually you were actually up there at Poppy Mountain that that, that year that that the first time I sang a bluegrass song on stage. Yeah. In that contest, yeah. you were drinking moonshine and eating soup beans around the fire. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when we got into that band competition. But yeah. I tell everybody, the first time I ever sang in public on stage was with you at the VFW in Grayson. And I yeah. hope I never see her again. I don't know if you remember that or not. <laughs> I, I do. I do. I, I, I won't throw your brother under the bus on that one either. But... Uh, yeah, we all know that story. Yeah. Uh, so, well, you know, we was talking, and you was talking about the Lonesome River Band, and I think if my memory serves me correctly, uh, I think you're probably the one that turned me on to them because I was in the same way, you know, bluegrass to me was Ralph Stanley, but, you know, mm. the same kind of stuff. Yeah, I remember you singing 2020 Vision for your yeah. dad out there before I had ever heard it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't I didn't have any knowledge of Jimmy Martin. Yeah. But your dad apparently had those records. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you sung 2020 Vision and a Widow, Widowmaker long before I ever <laughs> yeah. heard Martin do it. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so, I mean... You know, like you said, I was in the same stage. I was listening to all kinds of music. Still do listen to all kinds mm-hmm. of music. Uh, Remember our rap experience? <laughs> <laughs> there's there's some experiences I wish I could forget. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Moorhead. Uh, was it Thursday night drink or drown yeah, or something yeah. like that? Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and tell the story. Go ahead. So, so, you know, back in the day when we was running pretty hard, Scott comes up and he wants to, uh, he's like, man, let's go over to Moorhead. You know, it was a country club or something. Was, mm-hmm. was called it's called. It's like a Thursday night. He said, you know, it's a, it's all you drink draft beer and all that stuff. So we're always in for all you can drink beers. And, uh, so we get over there. I got, I got like a Harley Davidson t-shirt on black leather jacket, walk in the club. And, you know, I can immediately tell that this, it, it ain't my scene. So a little I turn, bit out of place. Yeah, I turn around to, to say something to Scott, and he he's gone. He's out in the middle of the dance floor singing OPP at the top. He's like, oh, man, I'm doomed. That's like, it's like uh, and I won't say the establishment we went to, but that's like the night me and you and Jason Green and Phil Carter went to an establishment in Lexington, and we looked like the village people when we walked in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... So yeah, I mean, but you know, even stuff like that, man, it, mm-hmm. it can it can be uh, there can be some kind of influence out of that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, but so from there, so now you, now you're playing, and I remember I remember pretty well. It seemed like one night we was out riding around and was was listening and drinking to Jones and Haggard, and the next time I got in the car with you, all all you played was bluegrass. Yeah, 
And uh, I remember one time riding with it, it was probably three or four hours in, and I was like, damn, man, you got anything in here besides blue? You, you'd already forsaken it all for bluegrass. That's how, that's how badly I had gotten bitten uh, by that bug that night at Poppy Mountain here in the yeah. Lonesome River Band. And the way they played bluegrass music, just in your face, driving. Uh, I, I couldn't get enough, you know, and I would I would go to festivals yeah. and hear different bands and talk to different people, and they were like, "Hey, have you heard this?" I hadn't heard yeah. I hadn't heard, hadn't heard the Bluegrass album band, Tony Rice and J.D. Crow, wow. yeah. at that point, and I got into all that stuff, and like you said, and to this day, all I listen to is Keith Whitley, George Jones, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, or Bluegrass, yeah, and uh, and I just never get tired of it. So, and I'm, I might be wrong, but. So the first bluegrass band you're ever a part of is actually a was your own. Mm-hmm. So where did the because you you played with the Strangers, Bluegrass Strangers mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. So I guess walk me through that time frame. I know, I know. Uh, we got into that. Me and uh, Daryl Barker and some guys from Sandy Hook got into that that contest up there and uh, at Poppy Mountain, and we won yeah. that contest and sang in front of people. And this, you know, the first time I'd ever sung bluegrass yeah. in front of them. And, I met a guy named Tim Gillum who lived in Moorhead. Great tenor singer, could play anything. But uh, he was playing mandolin at the time. And uh, he and I decided we wanted to get a group together. And uh, Brent Pack was playing with uh, Billy Renee out of Mount Sterling at that time. And Brent told me that he knew two guys in uh, Lawrence County, in Louisa, a father and a son. Uh, the father was a good baritone singer and a banjo player, yeah. and the son was a bass player and tenor singer. It was Doug and Jim Burchett. And uh, he set it up to where I went to Louisa, <clears throat> and Tim and I went up there, and we jammed with him. And I'm like, well, I, I, at the end of the jam, I told him, I said, i got some few, few shows scheduled. I said, would you guys be interested in, in uh, completing those with me? And they said, yeah. And, and you know, we held that together. For about three years, yeah. you know, we played local, regionally. We played in southern Ohio and uh, southeastern uh, Virginia and uh, all over Kentucky. Played at Shriners Festival, yeah. and Rudy Fest, and those types of things. And um, Doug and Doug decided he had he wanted to go to pursue other things. So uh, there was about a four month period there where I wasn't playing, and I remember sitting at home when it was a Sunday. You and I had been out, yeah, and I called you, and I called you right after that. <laughs> I got a phone call. Uh, you know, Bluegrass Strangers was one of the hottest. Oh, yeah, at that time, times. they were you know, they were smoking. Traditional. Yeah. They were playing a bunch. and They had gotten rid of the guy that was playing rhythm guitar and, and singing some of the lead for him. And got a phone call. Uh, as you can probably suspect, I wasn't feeling real good. <laughs> and uh, the guy on the other line says, it's Scott Taggart. And I said, yeah, he said, it's Dick Webb. I said, get out of here. You know? <laughs> he said, no, it's just Dick Webb. He said, I got your number off Sandy Nip. He said, uh, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, not much. Why? And he said, you want to drive up to Franklin Furnace, and uh, which is across the river in Ohio from Greenup yeah. County, and from Greenup. I said, sure. And I went up there. And it, It's odd because the two, the first two really quote-unquote professional jobs I had I guess I auditioned and didn't, didn't really know I was auditioning. Didn't know you were, yeah. So I went up there to Franklin <laughs> Furnace and, and jammed with him. And he's like, well, we're going to Franklin, North Carolina next Saturday. He said, you want to go with us? I said, sure. Um, but before that, backing it up a little bit, I, I was in a jam at Ronnie Barker's garage <laughs> over on Rattlesnake Ridge. Ridge. And Dave Evans showed up over there. Mm. And uh, we, we played and sang. I, it was just an honor to do it at the time. Yeah. Had no designs or nothing set on playing with him or anything but 
at the end of the night, sort of the same thing. He says, uh, next Friday night, he said, I'm going to the White Flash restaurant in Jackson, Kentucky. He said, you'll have to bring your own knife. He said, it gets pretty rough. He said, you want to go with me? And I said, yeah. And I played with Dave yeah. six, seven months. And and then from Dave, uh, that that whole thing transpired Strangers. with Dick Webb and yeah. Bluegrass Strangers, which I stayed with over three years and recorded an album with yeah. him. So it was, and you it, all traveled a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Dick had a sound company, and uh, a lot of times we'd show up uh, on Thursday morning, and uh, I had a job doing telecommunications that allowed me to, to do this. I'd, yeah. I'd show up on Thursday morning, and then we would play either Friday or Saturday, but we had to be there till the show ended. So yeah. a lot of times I wouldn't get home till Sunday. And uh, he introduced me to a lot of folks. You know, the first time I was at Ralph Stanley's festival, he, he introduced me to Ralph, and he did the sound for those guys. And yeah. uh, that's where I met Jimmy Martin, and uh, just an invaluable learning experience to, oh, just yeah. to get to run up and down the road with some yeah. guys that had been there and done that. Yeah, I mean, you know, just uh, when when you can get in it that way, I mean, you you kind of broke into it the best way you possibly could. I mean, you just got through in the fire, and you but you got through in there with people that were. Either they they'd help you or, or you would watch and learn from them as you went along. So yeah, I mean that's I really owe I really owe uh, Dick Webb and Jim Likens a huge debt of gratitude as far as it comes to music because they stretched me vocally. Yeah. Um, you know when I first started, you know picking and singing and stuff. You know I, I sung in a you know a lower register right. like D E. Yeah. Uh, you know some G stuff and when I got with Strangers, we'd come out. First forty-five was in B. <laughs> the second forty-five was in C. Yeah, yeah, and it was either get it or go. Yeah, and uh, so they he really helped me. He, he taught me about parts to some degree, singing yeah. parts, and uh, they just really helped me uh, find myself as you know as, yeah. as a vocalist. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I know watching and just going along as the years went, and uh, you know, every now and then I could get the chance to get out. If if I didn't hear you, then uh, we'd usually find ourselves, you know, at two o'clock in the morning at the shrine park or yeah. somewhere at these festivals and then playing and singing. Yeah, we played some package shows too, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, done some shows together. Uh, so you leave, you leave the strangers, you leave Dave Evans, and then uh, is that? Uh, so I'm trying to think. You had to, this, but the solo deal, the solo thing that you recorded, that was before. Yeah, I'll tell you how that came about. Is that uh, I. I was going back to school. That's the reason I left the strangers. I was going to go back to school and this was about 06 and finish my degree. I was really close. Yeah. And, um, you know it as well as anybody, but if you haven't been out there and done it, people that think running up and down the road <laughs> on a bus for 12 hours and playing two hours yeah. of music and then getting back on that bus and doing it all over again is an easy job. No, it's it's not. not. So I was ready to be off the road for a while and become a little more stable, you know, and <clears throat> I had quit that job at telecommunications and was getting ready to start back at Morehead State University. But in the meantime, you know, of course, I couldn't. I wasn't going to quit playing music. Right. So, I got a reincarnation of Kentucky Sunrise. Uh, it was Carl David James on the mandolin, right. Don Shug yeah. on banjo, and Jeremy Newman on bass. And then later on, we added Johnny Brown for some lead guitar. And we recorded one album, um, "The State I'm In," and uh, you know, people seemed to like it. Yeah. I uh, thought we had some good material. Thought the singing was good on it. The production, you know, you look back now in the production you know, right, at a right. smaller studio is yeah. not what you really want now. But it was all it was all uh, analog at the time. Yeah, you know? yeah. So we were getting ready to do album number two, and as you know, they say that old saying, "Familiarity breeds contempt." Yeah. 
it's that's the case here. You know, we couldn't couldn't arrive at any conclusions on you know arrangements and material and this and that. And I'd gotten some stuff from Dave Carroll to put on that album, and uh, we actually recorded with Ray Kraft probably about five or six tracks, and it just became so contentious. I just told those guys, I said, folding the tents on Kentucky Sunrise. Yeah. My intention was to take that material because I really liked the material that ended up on my solo project. I, I thought so much of the material. I, my intention was to do that solo project and then focus on teaching and coaching basketball. Yeah. And uh, Dave and I knew each other and, and we talked, and but uh, we, we weren't the friends that we would later become. Yeah. And so I talked to him at the Olive Field Festival and I'm like, I'm going to do this solo album. I'd like for you to come in and play some lead guitar, sing some on it, you know. And I said, uh, can you help me find some pickers to do that? And he said, yeah, sure. And Brent Pack, he wasn't playing with anybody at the time. He volunteered to come in and play some banjo. And Doug, my original bass player, came back and played bass and sung tenor. And Chaston Carroll, Dave's son, came in on mandolin. And again, I was going to cut this album. And be done. Be done. I was in, you know, well in my 40s, and I said, it's, you know, it's time to grow up. Yeah. So we go in the studio, Jack's Tracks and Paintsville, and uh, we start rehearsing this material, and we kind of, everybody kind of starts looking at each other because when it's right, you it's, know it. it you, right. As a musician, you know it. Yeah. You know? And so we go in and cut this album, and we're just really tickled with the way that things happened, you know. A small label picked it up, Kindred yeah. Records, and I said, I've got, uh, about seven shows left that I'd booked with Kentucky Sunrise. Dave still had a band. Dave, yeah. Dave had New River Line. I said, I got about seven shows left with uh, Kentucky Sunrise. I said, you guys be interested in filling those dates for me. And I know I'm being long-winded here. No, but this that's is, fine. It's huh? a long story. And they said, sure. And, you know, it seems like every show that we went and played led to another date. Yeah. We were at the Sandy Hook uh, Tobacco Festival, and it was Piss pouring around. I mean, straight down. <laughs> I think I'm a, I'm a, you I'm were there. there. You were definitely yeah. there. You were definitely. This was yeah. 2012 or yeah, 13. Yeah, because I remember driving back and that's. Oh yeah. So we were looking for a place to warm up, and only in Sandy Hook, Kentucky, will they open the post office for you to go in there and play bluegrass music. <laughs> so we were in there warming up, and there's this guy from West Virginia, and his name was Ronnie, and he's got a YouTube channel, and it's called Ronnie's Bluegrass. Yeah. He asked. He wanted out of the rain too, and he asked me to come in and film. And we said, sure. And uh, we did the uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost that Ernie Thacker recorded. Wow. It's the first thing we kicked off with. And he recorded that, and he put it on YouTube. And as fate would have it, a guy in North Carolina saw it. And uh, he had a management company. And he contacted Dave and uh, wanted to know if we were interested in, in representation. Yeah. Dave said, well, I don't know. I really don't know if we have a band yet or not, <laughs> you know. But uh, we did get, it was called Deep River Management. We, we got with those guys. And uh, the next thing that happened is that uh, Mark Hodges from Mountain Fever Records heard that same video. Yeah. And uh, Dave <clears throat> got to talking to him, and we agreed to do a, a one-album thing for yeah. him, you know. And... Uh, he really liked what he saw, and we, we've been with Mountain Fever ever since. Yeah. But we actually formed Hammertown without meaning to form a band. We weren't really trying to form a band. Dave had one, and I was yeah. going to be done, and you know, and that was it. And here we are. This is the 10th anniversary of Hammertown, and we're, f we're getting ready to release our fifth yeah. album. And 
you were just trying to fulfill your obligations and get on out. Of That's the it. I, I had, I, 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 you know, me, I'm kind of hard headed. I, I wasn't going to let the disagreements with the other guys um, keep me from putting an album out, something that I could be proud of, something right. I had a vision for, uh, you know, because yeah. I, I wanted to play my style of music. Oh, yeah. That Lonesome River Band driving style of music, and I had the material I thought we could do that with, and I wanted to get that out there, and, and if that was going to be the end of it, I wanted to leave it on that note. But, yeah. Uh, you know, fate had other ideas. <laughs> well, that's usually the way it works. Yep. You know, I, it's like the same deal, I don't know, four years ago. I was at that point, too, you know, where I was just burnt out. Yeah. And uh, and I just told the guys, I said, guys, I'm taking a few months away. And it was just one of those things, well, how many months? I don't know. Mm-hmm. When, when I'm ready, I'll come back. If I don't get ready, I won't come back. Well, that's the great thing about bluegrass is that bluegrass season typically, typically runs from around the 1st of April to the end of September. Yeah. So you've got October, November, December, January, February, March. You know, you've yeah. got six months. You can pick up some, some uh, percentage shows indoors right. if you want to. But, you know, you make you make your money at the, uh, festivals. At the festivals in the summertime. So you get that breath of air. Whereas in, in your situation, it's, it's year-round. Yeah, you're yes, playing yeah. the clubs. You're, <laughs> you're, your... you're hitting it all year long, yeah. And uh, But, you know, and that's how uh, where I was going there with that. That's just kind of how this – current lineup of the band that's kind of how it come together it was all accidental uh marty my bass player now uh he just filled in for me tonight and i mean it was just we knew it you know when i started singing and he started singing some harmonies with me i was like man that sounds Fits. that sounds good and and so it started with him and it just, it just came together but so i'm gonna switch gears a little bit as i know uh go back to talking about influences i know there's at least one guy from right here in town that was a big influence on me and you both. Uh, unfortunately, lost him mm-hmm. a while back. Cause, but it was Bobby Joe Hedge. And uh, tell, what 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 did Bobby Joe as far as music and French and everything? You know? Well, see, the first time I went in the studio, you know, and I still don't consider myself in any measurable form knowledgeable about what goes on in the studio. Right? Yeah, me either. But I didn't know anything. And the first time I went in the studio was with Bobby Joe Hedge and Larry Frail. Yeah. And Bobby had a way about him that he could make anybody feel comfortable. Yeah. I look back, and especially playing guitar, I wasn't worth a shit. <laughs> and I knew, I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. And that's bad when yeah, you're not yeah, very good and you don't not, know it. Yeah, that's But the Bobby worst. would never tell you that. He's like, yeah. hey, well, you're doing good. But he t- he always told me, he said, <clears throat> and I appreciate it. I remember him saying this, and I, yeah. I appreciate it, and I valued it so much. I remember him telling me one day up here at his house, Cause he was, you know how he was. He always wanted to host a jam. If there was yeah. ever any music, Bobby Joe wanted to be in on it. He yeah. told me one day we were doing bluegrass. He's like, at a bluegrass jam, he said, "You're going to be male vocalist of the year one of these days." He said, "You're." That's right. a friend talking, you know. But, yeah. but it gave me a boost, and and uh, you know, Bobby, I recorded some of his songs. January Snow was one that sticks it's a great out. Song, yeah, too. awesome song, Ballad of a Forgotten Soldier, and he's a. Uh, he was just a great guy, and uh, like I say, he he had a, he was so positive with me and so reassuring. And when I, you know, he had more confidence in me than I had in myself. Right, right. And uh, those guys don't come along too often in the music business. Because no, everybody's wanting to. They'd rather knock you down and beat you. Yeah, down absolutely, and, and bluegrass is getting that way too. It's getting so competitive that you know yeah. there's a lot of, um, you know, backbiting so to speak. People yeah. undercutting you on money and this and that. You know, but Bobby was. Uh, Bobby was always the most supportive guy in the world. He was so creative. Uh, I, I view him more as a poet than a songwriter, but yeah. some of his poems we put songs to, and they, they turned out tremendous. And 
you and I both sing at his funeral, and, yeah. and I think about him often. Yeah, I know, man. When I mean, I first met Bobby Joe, when I was probably, I mean, I was same thing. I mean, just just I just started playing. You know, I was probably sixteen. He's actually he's actually had asked me if I'd heard you oh, before yeah. I ever met you, and I said no. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, I remember being, you know, I'd say sixteen or so, and. uh we just, you know, there's just one group of kids that we always ran together and got into meetings and stuff, and uh, uh, used to run a little bit with his uh, his son Brian, but I, I actually went out uh, with his daughter Anna a couple of times. So, and we all just started kind of hanging in the same circles. And I remember when I met him, man, it reminded me of every time I hear the Bellamy Brothers song "Old Hippie." Yeah, I think about Bobby Joe, especially back in those days. Yeah, that's fitting. Uh, you know, because he had the uh, he had the old van all dressed out, you mm-hmm. know. And, and long hair and a beard, but you know, and we get to a point, and it's like you wouldn't imagine it, but a bunch of teenagers running around, man, let's let's go up to Bobby Joe's, and we end up piling up, sleeping on the couch, just listening to him sing songs, and, and listen, probably amazing. my first memory of a real person sitting down playing the guitar and singing was a Bobby Joe Hedge. Yeah, uh, I was, I couldn't have been more than seven, eight, nine years old. And he wow. was real good friends with my uncle Mike. You remember yeah, Bob, Bobby's yeah, dad? Yeah. Butch? He was, they were real good friends. And, uh, I think he, he was, he was actually kin to Butch's, Butch's first wife. And I can remember going down there at times and, and him sitting in the living room with a couple other guys playing and singing. I, to me, it, it might as well have been Elvis. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know yeah. any better, but I was, I can yeah. remember being fascinated by watching him. Yeah. What are they doing with their hands and stuff? Yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, so my first memory of a of an actual person up close and personal playing a guitar is Bobby Joe yeah. Hedge in my uncle's living room. So, I mean, there's 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 so many that came around here. I don't know if you ever spent any time or, or listened to uh, back in the day like Clay Dixon. No, I never did. But I, uh, everybody yeah. in the in the early late eighties, early nineties, everybody talked about Clay Dixon. Clay Dixon was the man. I mean, I I remember uh, you know years ago I met him because uh, my brother Scott was. Uh, Hanging out with a guy Rick Stevens, and Rick was playing drums. I remember Clay Dixon band. I remember and, uh, they uh, they had a cabin over at Carter Caves. That's where they rehearsed at, if you want to call it that. It was, <laughs> Scott said, "I'm gonna take you over here, man. We're going, you know, you can jam with these guys and sing." And there was a, a keg of beer in the back hatch of the, his like shocker Camaro. So shocker. But yeah, Clay Dixon. Uh, you know, uh, there's just just so many, man. But Bobby Joe was I was the same way with me. I mean, I was just probably the first real person that wasn't on television that, yep. you know that i sat and just watched him yep. and, and uh you know probably learned more just watching him and listening to him than i ever did you know yep. taking Bo- a lesson we we wanted to uh bobby had some songs that he had written and i had a couple that i'd written and larry fraley had a couple he'd written and they wanted to go in and record them and we recorded them up on square lick in the uh easterling studios yeah and uh i didn't know anything about bobby said well we got to have something to put on a cd cover and uh, it was me and him and Larry leaned up against the fence yep. up at Vernon Adkins's, <laughs> and uh, he called the the group, if you can call it that, Forever Blue. And uh, I never will forget that we had Jesse Wells playing some fiddle on it, and uh, it was to me it was might as well I might as well been the Grand Ole Opry. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was tickled. I think you cut one of my songs. We did yeah. wishing yeah. well. Yeah. Sure did. Absolutely. You got the tenor on yeah. that. Yeah, I, th- I did you, have you the tenor. Played the tenor on. It. Sung a tenor on that. All right, so I'm going to take a big wild detour here and, and probably backtrack and go to the past. Uh, boomerangs. <laughs> Listen, 
I got to tell you something, and I tell everybody this. I look back, and I owe you an apology. <laughs> Me? I owe you an apology <laughs> for boomerangs and cutters. <laughs> you would let me get, I, I guess I could sing, okay? But you let me get up there with the guitar in my hand. I didn't even know what an E minor was. And you sung that damn Blues Traveler song. Oh, yeah. And I was I might as well have been trying to do brain surgery. But at the end of the day, you paid me, and you paid me a decent <laughs> amount of money. And I look back, and I'm like, damn, he must love me, because I know I suck. Well, it, I mean, in your defense, that song's got like... <laughs> It's got like six, seven chords in it, and they just change. I mean, they don't. You don't stay in one chord over a look, half a measure. I look like I was trying to do a calculus problem. <laughs> I, I, I was like, "Damn!" Well, I just remember. So we, uh, you know, at first our, our big hangout was uh, was cutters. You know, I mean, it, and it was a week. I mean, it probably we was probably there three or four nights a week. And uh, then I remember. Uh, I think I remember how the whole whole deal came about. We ended up at uh, Boomerang. I don't know if we went there to eat. What we did. Bill Pohl comes out, and <laughs> no, Bill told me later that he had heard that you and I were going to Cutters. Oh, okay. And that he he was opening that thing. He he was trying to undercut the competition. Yeah, because I remember the first thing he told me. He said, "He said, how much money is it going to take to get you away from that shit hole next yeah, that's door?" That's exactly what. That's, that's exactly how that's he said. Went. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, we started doing that. You know, just the acoustic thing and. And man, it was killing. I mean, we had crowds rolling. And again, I wasn't very good, but I appreciate. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was still green. I mean, I'd played, uh, I don't know, I guess, pretty much ragtime and some of the local bars in Moorhead, but that's about as far as I'd went. And uh, so we got, we got to give a shout out to John Lunsford, our uh, our bass, bass player. player. I was trying to, I couldn't remember what played bass. Got to play Jason Green when he hit himself <laughs> in the face with the guitar. <laughs> yeah. Blue or our blue, oh, oh, blue. I yeah. never did know his real name. I still to this day don't know. But. I couldn't tell you. Uh, but uh, I mean, before yeah. you go any farther, man, that's the, those are the days. Those were the uh, the the quote unquote breeding ground. The, yeah, the, where I learned yeah how to play in front of a crowd and what to do and what not to do. And uh, again, I owe you a big thanks for that because. Well. Uh, you probably learned more of what not to do by watching me than you <laughs> no, what to do. No, I, I, I did learn one thing. I learned after a while I, I had quit playing in the clubs. <laughs> it gets it gets rough, though. It's all your fault. Well, you know, but, I mean, those times I remember, we, you know, we'd play out there and, I don't know, we'd play Friday and Saturday, play two nights, didn't we? Yeah. But where were we at on Wednesday and Thursday? Same place. Yeah. <laughs> so we might as well have, might as well just had a cot laid up yeah. in there and just stay yeah. there. yeah. But yeah, man, those those were uh, and I remember good times. It, it graduated, it graduated from from just you and I to you and me and John. Yeah, and then it graduated to you, me, Tim Howard, Randy yep. Hampton. Uh, what was long Paul, uh Joe Webb. Joe, no, Webb. Joe, Joe as Randy was playing drums then. Who was the bass player? Uh, Daryl Ford. Daryl Ford. Yeah, yeah. And then I think I'm not sure Dave Carter placed you. You know, you talk about a dude that had a good time. That was oh me. yeah, that was yeah. me, man. With that yeah. bunch out there at, at, at Boomerangs and yeah, when uh, he got full band, I thought again, I thought it. This is the top. It doesn't yeah. get any better than this. Well, you know, and those all those guys, man. Uh, by the time they come around over there, and I'd known them for a while because. When I was playing the ragtime and hunting, now I remember Daryl. He played locally. Did he yeah. play with Tim Kofer and those guys, or did he, he might have? Yeah, he might have played with Tim. Uh, but I met uh, Tim Howard, Dave Carter, Randy. Uh, they played a place called Houston's up in Huntington. You and I went there yeah. a couple of times. He he had a wife, Kelly Cord. Yeah, they played Kelly Cord. Yep, and uh, so we we uh, we got to know each other there because if Sunday nights at the ragtime were dead, we just shut down. We go over and listen mm-hmm. to them. But 
Yeah, and that was a big that was a big uh, uh, shock to me too, because those guys already been doing this for you know thirty some years yeah. by that time, and uh, you they know, were pros, man. Oh yeah, and I mean it was a shock to me because I mean I was doing my thing. The only previous experience I had, you know, was me and Rodney and David and all those guys, and uh, you know we had a fun, good little band, but it wasn't that. You know, when it's when people were telling me, you know, I remember the first time I heard somebody. <laughs> about it's it's a four and two count and i'm gonna strike it on a diamond i'm like what the hell's listen, a diamond what's he listen, saying the first time they started that number shit to me me and you we, they might as well have been talking german i know uh, we I know. neither one of us knew what the hell it, what the hell's a six <laughs> you mean a six hit the goes to the six yeah but you know that was i think that was a big uh probably a big growing up phase for me and you both it was for me for to, sure to kind of hit the you know the different level on you know how you're really supposed to play music and how yeah. it's supposed to be done. You know, I look back and I tell guys all the time, in 2001, 2002, when I first started Kentucky Sunrise, I look back and hell. I, at the time, I remember thinking, shit, we can play with anybody. Yeah. And you really don't know how bad you are or how much you've grown until you look back. Until you get up with somebody you know? that is that good yeah. and you're like, yeah. And you get to play music and it's kind of, uh, that, that old saying's true, you know, you water will rise to its own level and the better musicians yeah. you play with the better you become and I yeah. learned a lot about rhythm uh, it was country rhythm but I learned a lot about rhythm from you and Tim Howard at the, yeah. during those times yeah it uh, you know I've always said even going you know forward in my own deal that the better quality I've got with me behind me the the better I'm going to sound regardless there's no question but you know so we both dealt with bands I mean, just maybe on some in some instances a different level. Like with you and Hammertown, you guys are a legitimate band. You know, it's kind of a one for all for yeah. one kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'm still in that position where yeah, I've got a band, but it's me. Well, and those guys can. Here's the difference: is myself, Dave, Dale, and Chaston are the core group. Right. We may have another one, and Brian. Yeah. Um, we own Hammertown together. Right. George Moulton Band. You're the owner, yeah, and they work for you, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's not the way it is. So there's the difference, yeah. And so you know, I've, I always looked at it that way, and but you know as well as anybody else, a lot of that, a lot of how a band sounds is a lot about their attitude mm-hmm. and what they're doing. I mean, I, I've always believed you can take, you know, players that are here at a certain level that have a great attitude and want to do it and work together and they're going to put you on a better show than players that oh. are up here that are playing for themselves no and not, not the, the whole entire no, sound. No question. So, you know, you've had to juggle that your whole career dealing with different people coming mm-hmm. in now. Have you learned anything about human beings or about people? A couple of things there is that uh, if you don't have the right mix in a, in a band, especially when you travel, yeah, you know, and you have we have to travel. We play as far north as Michigan, as far south as Georgia, all up and down the East Coast. You know, and if you have to travel and spend any time with somebody in a van <laughs> or in a hotel room, if the yeah. personalities ain't right, it, it, the music suffers, and, yeah. and it's miserable for you. Yeah, uh, you also, as a group, you have to have the same taste and the same desire for a certain sound. Right, you know, and that's the thing that happened with us when we got into the studio that first time is that everybody heard the sound that they've been looking for. Yeah. It was that driving type sound, you know. If you don't have the right mix of people around you, and I, I use this phrase a lot, it's like babysitting grown men. 
Yeah. Because there were times before I got with Hammertown where I'd get a phone call where the bass player was bitching about the guitar player. And a car- guitar player <laughs> yeah, yeah, would yeah. call, and he was bitching about the mandolin player. Yeah. Nobody liked the bass player because he was out of time. And, <laughs> you know, and it just got to, got to be too much. Yeah. So, um, you know, I got to at that point. And, and plus, you, you got to do your own booking. Yeah, yeah. And I was doing all the booking before I got with Hammertown. Dave does it now. It just got to be too much, and it can wear on you. And if you don't, you know, some people don't want to play as much. And some yeah. want to play more. Yeah. That's not been the way. That's not the way it's been with us. You know, as uh, you know, we, we've gotten this is ten years, and yeah. we've gotten to pay to a respectable amount. And you know, we all discuss: Do we want to go this far for this much money? Do we want how many dates do we want to play? Right. So, uh, we're we're really unique in that in that way. I think you know, Blue Highway is another one. Not that we're yeah. like Blue Highway, but Blue Highway's been together twenty five years and have had one change. Yeah, and uh, you know, they don't. They don't need the bus. I've talked to Tim Stafford yeah. and Sean Lane. They, that's just overhead. They're, they're not about putting on airs. They don't need to roll up in a Prevost. They roll yeah. up in a, in, a, in a van and roll out and blow your face off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is the people around you, I mean. but And you'll always notice, like, my, my band's changed, uh, you know, in certain ways tremendously over the years. But, you know, like you were talking earlier, going in these clubs – night in night out all year long and never takes a break you know it's a lot easier to burn yourself out and, and want to do something different well you know and i don't mean to interrupt but you know i've been there with you to a degree in clubs playing and then uh you go to the bluegrass festivals you're playing for two entirely different crowds oh yeah you have to entertain so much more in a club yeah yeah people in bluegrass they'll sit there quietly respectfully listen and to listen it. and enjoy the music and yeah. in clubs it's you know it's partying, drinking, laughing, yeah. shouting. So you have to be able to entertain yeah. uh, so at a, at a much different level in a club than you do at a bluegrass festival. Yeah, I mean, it, I've only played one place that was an actual club where it was set up that way. And uh, that's another guy that once I got to Lexington that, that uh, influenced me a lot. Not, not so much how I want to sing or how I want to play, but how to carry myself, how to entertain, mm-hmm. how to do this and that. And that was Larry Redman. Never got to meet him. I've heard you talk about him a lot. I mean, I come back from when I'm after I have my writing deal, and we come home from Nashville. He gives me a call. You know, he's just got a club down there, and of course, Larry. I played, remember the club. Yeah, it's down in the basement down mm-hmm. on Main Street, right mm-hmm. across from the old courthouse. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Man, I want you. Would you be interested in coming down and playing?" You know, because Larry was kind of trying to phase himself out. He was, uh, you know, probably mid to upper fifties at, at that time, and uh, so I told him I would. But this way, his was set up. You know, I come in and, there and, and it's just tables. You, you yep. I mean, you yep. stand, there's no dancing. Yep. You know, you sit at tables and you listen. And the first thing that got me, man, I was, I was in a little hole in the wall in the back room. And it was like getting ready to be time for me to go on the show. And a bouncer comes to the back room. I said, sir, are you ready to take the stage? <laughs> you know, who, who are you talking to? You ready to take the stage? acoustic show? Yeah. He said, you ready to take the stage, Mr. Moulton? Yeah, but I'm George. No, sir, you're Mr. Moten. And the bouncer comes, gets you because it was so small and it'd be so packed. And man, he pushes you through and, and escorts you to the stage. You can look over like clockwork. Within five minutes, you're sitting and he's standing there to get you off the stage. And every employee in that bar addressed me as either sir or Mr. Moten. Wow. And when I talked to Larry, he was like, man, he said, you're the money. I'm the money. He said, these guys know. But that's how their their pay gets. And he said, that's how I tell my employees. I said, any artist that's in here playing, he's, he's the top dog or she's the top dog that's in this club because that's how we're making our money. And so I, that's what I learned from Larry is like, okay, the most important part is 
I am the money. And it takes away the ego. I mean, I'm sure. not talking from an sure. egotistical point. Uh, you know, I. you go to Austin City, who's playing? George Moulton. Now, mm-hmm. there's five, six other guys up there with me oh, that I'll I couldn't do it without. Absolutely. But, you know, it's just absolutely. like, uh, you know, it's my name out there, so I've got I've got to work on that. You're responsible and, for the product. Too. And with you doing the band thing, you know, Hammertown is yours. Mm-hmm. People's, you know, I mean, I'm if I think of Hammertown, but I, I don't, you know, I don't know all the guys that will. But I think Hammertown, I think of you and Dave. Yep. You know. Yep. And so you still got to... Uh, you got to maintain. You got to be what you you should be outside of that realm. Mm-hmm. You know, in order to keep what going, what you're doing. The longer you play, it seems like, and I think you'll agree. The longer you play, uh, the expectation you, there becomes an expectation. People expect a certain thing when they come and see you. Yeah. You know, and uh, if they don't get that. Then I, you probably got people been coming to Austin City for ten years or more, right? Oh, yeah, religiously. Yeah. yeah. Well, we get people, you know, at certain festivals every year, and they, you know, with, like when we go to Milan, Michigan, there's a certain group up there that comes and just you know to see us. Yeah. And they, we see them, and they come and speak, and they'll feed us, and and this and that, you know. But if if you don't meet that expectation, um, then you're out of business. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fact, man. I but mean, it sounds like Larry Redmond had it figured out because. Uh, you know, well, you know, Larry was in that same vibe with, you know, Greg Austin and Doug Brady. I mean, Larry been doing it for ages, you know. I listen to him tell stories like, you know, Larry used to play a place called, uh, uh, what was it called, the Bowery or, or something up there. I remember the first time I saw him. And I think I went with a group from Austin City. We were off and they wanted to go. And I'd heard stories about him. And I already had my mind made up that I didn't like him. I didn't. I didn't like him as. A, it's funny how you do that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like him as a singer. I didn't yeah. even. I didn't even like him as a person, yeah. and never even seen him. Yeah. Uh, it's Dixie Tavern, and this it had an upstairs and a downstairs. And I walk in, and it's it's a great big. I mean, I'm talking this place is gonna hold five six hundred people. And I walk in, and it's full. I mean, you're weaving trying to get to you know. I mean, it's packed, and there's a big old stage up there. With a bar stool sitting on, and a microphone, no drum kit, no drum, no, not no band. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, and this no, guy, no, no, no expectation of a band. This guy walks out, man, and I mean, he starts clawing in these songs, and he's got kind of a Merle, kind of a Merle Haggard sound, Merle Haggard look. You know, you can tell Merle Haggard's been a yeah. a big influence on on uh, Larry, and he kills it. People going wild, and this one guy in a room full of six hundred people playing his acoustic guitar and, and singing songs, and he's got a song. One of my favorite things he does is, is called "Garth Brooks Ain't Playing Here Tonight." He don't do requests. <laughs> Good. You know, somebody say, somebody say, you know, hey man, can you play Garth Brooks? He'd, he'd be like, do I fucking look like Garth Brooks? <laughs> and I'm like, you gotta respect that, you man. know. So, and I started taking that on too. I was like. I'm gonna do what I want to do, sure. and just you know. Well, that's the thing, you know. You said you hit on something there that Dave and I have talked about over and over and over again. It's great when people love what you do, mm-hmm. but if you're not doing what you want to do personally or yeah. the music that you love personally, yeah. there it, it'll show on stage. You got to play for you first. Then that's the way we got started. You know, when we got started, we didn't know if we how long we'd be together, or you know, we hadn't no idea about a record deal or anything like that. Yeah. But we decided early on we were going to play the, t- the type and the style of music that we liked. Yeah. And that was going to be, uh, we, were, we were going to sing the best we could, you know, try to, you know, harmonize the best we could yeah. and play driving up tempo in your face music. And, you know, 
fortunately for us, it's been it's been a pretty successful recipe. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, how, how many how many recordings, how many albums, whatever you want to call them, have you, have you guys put out as Hammertown now? Uh, in June, I say no, it'd be May. I think it's May is the release date for number five. Okay. Um, and there's you got there's you got a single floating around out yeah, there on that right got now. One, I heard got, it one, day. got one now. Um, uh, written by uh, it slips my mind who 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 wrote it. Oh, Russell Johnson from North Carolina. Hmm. Um, he's one of the Grass Cats. You know, kind of a legendary type figure. Yeah. In in the business it's called Next to Nothing, and it's it's a great tune. You can find it on Apple or anybody that carries music. You know. Right. But uh, you know we've been very fortunate. We've had, I don't know, four or five number ones and twenty, twenty some top tens and you know, twenty five or thirty top twenties and uh, a song that uh, you know I, I had an idea. I'll tell you uh, real quickly if I can get off on this a little <laughs> bit. The song that came to mind is, is is Hillbilly Heroes. Yeah, and it's a funny story. I told you about going to the woods with Dad and cutting yeah. wood. So we could burn it, keep warm in the wintertime. And those days, I remembered those days. And, and um, you know, you you got to, you had that song called Jukebox Heroes, where you yeah. sang about some of the guys that you that you liked. Right. And it, you know, I didn't didn't set out to write a song called Hillbilly Heroes. Yeah. But they are my heroes now, and you know, they laid the the foundation that we're walking on now. And you know. People refer to bluegrass music a lot as hillbilly music, so right, I, thought, right. I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, but I, you know, Dave's a fantastic writer. He's written songs for just a number of huge bluegrass groups. And I, I told Dave one day, I said, "I got this idea for a song," and I had a little bit of the chorus. You know, I said, "The Stanleys from Virginia, yeah, uh, the King from Tennessee," and uh, Dave said, "Yeah, that sounds interesting." And you know, just kind of blood brushed it off. Yeah, and we were getting ready to do that that album that eventually became. Hillbilly, the Hillbilly Heroes album, and I mentioned it to him again, and uh, he said, "Yeah, he said we need to dig into that a little bit." You know, nothing. <laughs> so I'm sitting at the house one night, and my cell phone rings, and I pick it up, and and Dave says, "Listen to this," you know. He's like, <laughs> "When I was just a boy in East Kentucky," because I told him, you know, yeah. you know that, yeah. that's kind of how. And he said, "When I was just a boy in East Kentucky, and I heard that lonesome sound on the radio." And he started singing the verse. I said, man, I really like that. And he said, all right, I'll call you back in a few minutes. <laughs> he called back and started the second verse. I said, yeah, you're taking this in a completely different direction than I had, but I like it. Yeah. Long story short, you know, it's a co-write for me, but uh, got to got to co-write and sing on a song that uh, Bluegrass Unlimited magazine, it was their number one for, it was wow. for 16 16 weeks. Cool, man. That's uh, The album was on the charts for 17 months. And uh, that's probably the highlight, you know, because yeah. I was so fully invested in it. And Dave just did a tremendous job of weaving and telling that story. It's yeah. got, when we talk about Hillbilly Heroes, it's got 40, I think it's 42 different uh, bluegrass artists from first generation, wow. second generation to today. And uh, it's still one of, one of our most requested tunes. And yeah. a lot of times we'll end a set with it, you know, and, uh, but it's it's a real source of pride for me to be able to have uh, you know a small part in writing that Shoot, and, yeah. and developing that and also being able to sing the lead on it. You yeah, know? I mean absolutely, man. And uh, I'll, I'll go off on this track. You talk about songwriters and stuff, and and the guy that you introduced me to, and we just lost him. I think this year too was uh, old Bill Castle. One of the Great. best. Man. I mean, you you didn't go to a bluegrass festival and not run into Bill. No, and Bill was uh, he was he was just a, a beacon. 
You know, he, yeah. was, he carried the torch for bluegrass music. He was 89 years old, I think, when he died. Mm. He was writing, and he, he, Doyle Lawson's recorded his songs. Russell Moore's recorded his songs. Third Time Out's recorded his songs. We recorded, you know, we we recut the dream that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a gospel song. Uh, it was nominated for uh, Song of the Year in 2001 when Third Time Out did it. Yeah. And we got to doing that song on stage when Russell and those guys weren't around. And Bill was always so complimentary of our version of it. And, uh, you know, it got to be where we got a lot of requests for it. And yeah. We asked Bill one time before we cut it, we are like, you know, understand completely if you don't want anybody to cut it because Russell Moore, right. you know, cut it. He said, oh, no. He said, you guys do it as good as anybody. Absolutely. Go, yeah, man. go ahead and do it. And he, he was really complimentary. And I I cut a couple of his songs on that solo album that I did. And I cut a couple of songs on the Kentucky Sunrise album that I did. So, Bill and I were really good friends, and um, I guarantee you, if you can go to a bluegrass festival, if you ask a hundred people if they know Bill Castle, ninety-five of them are going to say oh, yes. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, a, I'm not a bluegrass guy, so to speak, but I, I mean, I absolutely had some great conversations with. Had Bill. a way with words, and you guys had a lot in common. You know, both great writers, and he's just—he was just a really good guy, and uh, just what, what you call a wordsmith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I—it's weird. Like the last, uh, the past podcast we did, we I interviewed our co-host, our absolute co-host, John McHugh. And I was just sitting here thinking, uh, between him, me, and you, there's there's one common denominator that I, that I see in everything. And we know that, you know, you can't do this without people around you that love you and supporting you. And uh, you know as well as anybody, I don't I don't know if there's very many shows you've ever seen me playing that, that Duke wasn't, you know, somewhere there. Nope. And, you know, John's dad was the same. And, and I know once you started getting into the bluegrass, I mean, anytime I come see you play, you know, Larry and your mom were right there in the front row watching you. Dave likes to tell a story. I'll feel one year when I was with Kentucky Sunrise. Yeah. Now, we're on a lineup with Blue Highway and Third Time Out, Lonesome River Band and Dole Lawson. Pretty decent acts. Pretty good day. <laughs> pretty good day of bluegrass. We come off stage and we got an encore, I think, and we went back out and did an encore. And, you know, Dad was always just so proud of, Oh yeah, me and basketball and, and things we got done in coaching and uh, and then also music and Dave will tell this story. You know, uh, we finish our encore. And I think Russell and those guys are getting, coming out and setting up stage. And he said, Larry walked up to me and said, elbowed me in the side and said, "That's the best damn band here today." <laughs> but you know, yeah. he 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 let his heart get in the way of his head. But he genuinely, truly felt like that. And you know, you talking about Duke? Yeah, it's a damn good thing Duke and Jill were around for us. Uh, okay. A yeah. lot of those, especially when we were doing that acoustic stuff. Yeah. Who knows where we we had to sleep yeah. in the parking lot a lot of times. Oh yeah, but no, I mean that's that's saying a lot, man. When you talk about Larry feeling that way, because you know Larry wasn't he wasn't no bullshitter. Really. He wasn't no bullshitter, but he also when I whatever I was around, he wasn't the kind of guy's going to you know be all lovey dovey and all mm-hmm. this stuff, you know. No. But and he told you how it was, so you knew if he if he said it, he meant it. Yeah. Whether it was you know he 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 would he he rarely says st- said stuff like that to me, but I think he said it. To people, yeah, knowing that it would get back to yeah. him. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. he he had that way about. Yeah, yeah he was something else. Well, we're, we got about ten minutes left, so I, I have a certain, I guess, uh, set of questions that is I'm responsible for asking. Uh, bucket list: any place in the world that you would just absolutely love to play. What would be that number one spot as far as venues? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll preface it by saying that. When I started playing bluegrass, I always I was always told that if you wanted to make something happen, you had to write it down on paper. Yeah. 
And I remember writing down on a piece of paper that I wanted to play 30 to 40 shows a year. I remember thinking I wanted to get a record deal. And I remember writing down the places I wanted to play. Yeah. Uh, number one, because we grew up listening to him, I mean, you'd hit many a black road, back road singing. <laughs> singing it was Ralph yeah. Stanley's Festival. Yeah. I've had the good fortune of playing that three times. Second was Bean Blossom, Indiana, Brown County. Yeah. Uh, the festival that Bill Monroe started. Got to play that with the Bluegrass Strangers once, and now the Hammertown's played it two or three different times. Yeah. Always wanted to play the Station Inn in Nashville. Got to do that. Uh, and this is a long shot, and but the day that I ever, if I were to get to ever play the Opry, yeah. and I think every musician, that's, that's the top for every musician, it would be the Opry. But as far as pure bluegrass venues, we've been fortunate enough to play in, in uh, a lot of the major ones. We got to play at the Musicians Against Childhood Cancer at Hoover Y Park. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's where I got to meet Daryl Singletary and, and uh, a lot of those folks, and it's just uh, a who's who. You know, it's where a bunch of musicians get together and raise money for childhood childhood cancer. Yeah. So I've gotten to play virtually every every place that I've ever really wanted to play. Yeah. I mean, the I mean, le- the legendary spots we've yeah. gotten to play them. Um, you know, I, I I love to play the Opry. Uh, you know, I know they have guests on there, and it yeah. didn't have to be the televised part, so brother. I, I, I've got I've got to, I've got to split it up because I'm I'm torn here. I don't know if my biggest thrill would be to play the actual Grand Ole Opry where it is right. now or to play the Ryman mm-hmm. Auditorium. Where, Either or. You know, to me, I guess just in my mind, to me, the Ryman Auditorium is always the Grand Ole Opry. What do they call it? The Mother Church? The Mother Church of Country Music, yeah. And, uh, of course, I, I didn't get to play, but I, I've been to the backstage of the Opry. So, yeah. did uh, uh, some kind of interview section with Porter Wagner. Got to meet Porter Wagner and all, yeah. little Jimmy Dickens. All oh, yeah. I got to meet all of them. Yeah. And I, I got to walk out. You know, I walked out and stood in that circle, which is the original stage from the Opry. And I, I may or may not have, you know, whispered a little George Jones song. <laughs> just to say, I did that's, George Jones on Opry. Absolutely, man. That's, but, that's uh, you know, that's it's. there's a bucket list everywhere. What's your bucket list? Do you play any, have you, is there a place that you really like to play besides the Opry? You know, I, and I don't know why. I mean, I've I've done it not in the vein that that I'd like to do it, but as weird as it sounds, I'd I'd love to be on stage playing to a packed house doing a concert in Rupp Arena. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I played a few shows in Rupp. I know you have. Uh, you know, as a headliner, cut right? in half. You know, yeah. it wasn't a big thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of my one of my biggest uh, one of my biggest thrills is, is when I got to sing the national anthem at, at Senior Day for UK back. I think it's Tubby's last year. Yeah. And that's probably as nervous as I've ever oh, been. Oh, I'm sure. I'm <laughs> I, was, sure. I was a wreck. Uh, how much TV have you done? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I've done, you know, I, I forget about half of it. You talk know. about being nervous. Uh, you know, I played at Poppy Mountain with the Bluegrass Strangers when they estimated the crowd over 8,000. Yeah. I mean, that was back in the 90s when it was early 2000s when it was rolling. And uh didn't bother me a bit. Didn't bother me a bit. But we played on a show called Bluegrass Sunday. WSAZ. Yeah. And they did it at the musician, or at the uh, the uh, Mountaineer Arts Center, Prestonsburg. And they had all these lights. And <laughs> Caitlin and I just got together. She was there. They had all these lights and these cameras down there. Yeah. And, and I'm telling you what, I had to take the words to my guitar because <laughs> I was so nervous. And I don't know why. It, it's, that, that was so intimidating. Yeah. I mean, even though it was a local Huntington yeah. TV station, yeah. that was the most nervous I've ever been singing. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it never bothered me because I, I think because I can't. It's like me doing my radio show now. I'm, it's just me sitting in a room talking to myself, and that's, yeah. that's kind of what TV always was for me. I just I just kind of zone the cameras out because best I can remember that was to don't look at the camera. Yeah, you just act like the camera. Yeah, there. So well, like, if I, I do that, it was hard for me not to do that. You know, and the thing about it is, is that. Uh, they'd started that show had started as America's Bluegrass Gospel Show, so I had watched it for five years. Yeah, Ernie Thacker and all these all these bunch had had gotten onto that show, so I watched it. And then when we were invited to do it, <laughs> Hammertown, it was probably the first or second year we we, yeah. we were a band. Yeah. And uh, you know, it was it was a big thrill for us. And I remember thinking, God, I can't screw this up because it's going to be recorded. And <laughs> Everybody's going to and see they're going to play it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the internet, man, it never goes yeah. away. Yeah, if I'm in the there. studio and I screw it up, I was, let's hit that again, you know. But you can't yeah. do that on live TV. I, I'm the same way with uh, weddings. I hate weddings. I, weddings don't bother me. I hate funerals. Well, funerals don't. The only thing I hate about funerals is by the time you get to that part where you're singing, everybody's kind of you know they've gotten that mode where okay, we're we're good, and you're the one that comes up there and gets them all started crying because you start singing something sad. It, to get, I say individually. We'll start with you. How many people do you think you've buried? Oh, not as many as I've buried, but but see, I, I've only I, sung at a few. few I weddings, have. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I get away from I, unless we're really close. I yeah. don't do weddings. Well, I, I've got to that point where unless you know, I mean, if you get married, I I might play at your wedding. I don't <laughs> you know. damn right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm the same way. All right, well, obviously, we're, we're creeping up here, so, and this is obviously, you're, you're going to be on the short list of a two-parter, because we'll have to get together yes, this again. Lord, tell, just, we'll get together next time and just tell stories. We may, we may change well, the we names. Well, we do have rules on this show. We can't say anything that could possibly get either anybody divorced or in prison. Well, we'll change the name. Okay. All right, well, hey, man, I've enjoyed it, and uh, that's going to do us for this episode of Weekend Superstars with John McHugh and George Moten. I said John's name first because he ain't even here. And I uh, want to thank our guest today, my buddy, my best friend, one of the greats of bluegrass music, in my opinion. I agree with you, Dad. Greatest band out there. Oh, thank you. And y'all catch us. We'll catch you around the horn the next time. Until then, keep right on listening. You've been listening to Weekend Superstars with George Moulton and John McHugh. I was really upset I wasn't able to make this episode tonight with Scott Tackett, but man, what a good guy, what a good friend, and a good musician. Make sure and go check out Hammertown at your bluegrass festivals. Find them on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your uh, streaming music. Until next time, later. Later.